I'm Helen Lowe, and this is Naked Conversations, Women Uninterrupted, a series of dialogues I'm sharing with a soul friend and fellow life learner, Lisa Fitzhugh, because we believe that relating to self and other with honesty and vulnerability unlocks the transformational potential needed in a world poised for collapse. While some might challenge the notion that conversation is a catalyst for real change, we trust this most humble of actions is precisely what's needed to dismantle what doesn't work and cultivate a more inclusive and sustainable way of being. Whoever you are, we're honored to have you in the conversation. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Lisa. Oh, how are you doing? I'm, I'm well. These technical challenges we're having are curious. They've got my attention. And uh, I'm, I feel really open to just going with the flow of whatever technology allows us to do today. I'm with you. Let's give it a try. So you and I were talking in the last few days about a topic we might um, take on. So I'll take a stab at framing it. Please jump in because I think it's fun when we both try to frame it. Um, it's a noticing of the way in which we're really being challenged as, as, an individ, as individuals and in society and as groups to wrestle with the extreme polarities that are inherent in this thing called reality the polarity of uh, you know someone's extreme introversion juxtaposed with you know their partner's extreme extroversion or the polarity of a leader's um, high need for control and a group's high need for more autonomy and that the more deeply attached to to those needs for control versus autonomy or introversion versus extroversion, the more attached we get to having to have that or needing to express things a certain way, the more potential for pretty dramatic conflict and divisiveness internal to ourselves if the polarities in us or external to ourselves if the polarity is going on outside of us. Um, so I was feeling a curiosity about exploring that with you. Um, so that we could draw some insights forward in the conversation about ways to work with polarity in a way that's more cre- maybe more creative. I think your your framing of of the issue of attachment um, is an important one. The polarities themselves just are right. There's nothing to be done about them, but it's our attachment to them. Uh, or the thinking that one way or the other is the right way is where we get hung up and where there's greater divisiveness, division, and uh, tension, conflict. Yeah. So my biggest noticing or observation in the last couple of weeks has been, again, starts at the individual level. And um I have been attached to um, trying very much to meet everybody else's needs 
but especially the needs of the system. What the system appears to want from me in terms of how I show up to uh, follow its rules around um, putting things in boxes and being very linear um, and demonstrating um, uh, competence in a very um, uh, direct and strong-willed way. Um, and I noticed that I've been taking those cues from the, from the society and from the system at large for so long and believing that and being very attached to following those rules. Um, and uh, and it, it's wreaked havoc on my physical system. Um, and whenever there is too much polarity in a system like the body, um, that's when disease comes in. Um, because there hasn't been enough balance. So it starts with me noticing where I'm attaching to, a, to one end or the other of a polarity inside me. Because I believe that the disease that ensues with me, because I've dealt with many physical issues in the last several years, the dis-ease that ensues inside me is essentially just a representation of the conflict that happens when it's when this you know attachment to to a polarity happens outside me there's a few threads that i could follow in in what you share i mean one of them is just making more explicit what we even mean by polarity so you used the example of the way you have felt uh, relevance or validated in certain societal or workplace systems is by being very direct, assertive, um, and kind of tightly putting things into boxes, yourself or your work, into very clean, discrete boxes that, that feel not organic, I'm imagining, based on what you're saying, that they, they aren't uh, reflective of the more fluidity of your human system. Exactly then somebody else might be grappling with a polarity of supreme, let's say, passivity, you know, or indirectness, feeling like they can't be direct in the system, like where the extremity, the polarity that they feel stuck in and that they've been expected to enact in, in their life is one of being passive, not having opinions, being indirect, not making too many requests. Um, so it's interesting to see that then we could even as individuals be stuck in relationships, in individual relationships, each acting out a different polarity and feeling kind of at the effect of like that the system or some construct of our relating is requiring that one person show up in one polarity and one person show up in the other. It's so fascinating. Um, and then actually we could even switch roles and jump into the other polarity, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, and, and in fact, you know, just working with a woman the other day, you know, and she's the person at the office who's the most vigilant about making sure all the details are done correctly. And that vigilance has become almost obsessive because her attachment to getting it right 
has, has moved into kind of an extreme state of constant attachment to being right. And I watch, and she watches, and she notices too, is that then it, put, it, cre- it forces the opposite to show its face. That is, most of the rest of the people around her either ignoring or dropping the balls out, not out of spite, but almost as if to represent the opposite of that polarity to bring it into balance. Her extreme push over here is, an, is, is kind of producing a stream reaction on the other side, kind of, in a sense, it's nature's way of creating a balance. <laughs> <laughs> But she doesn't see it that way. She sees everybody as, you know, screw-ups making mistakes and, and not doing their jobs well, as opposed to understanding that her deep, this, this extreme position she's holding to is, has created kind of a situation where that polarity has to emerge so that, so that things can come into balance. Yeah, yeah. And in my own situation, what I could say is I've been increasingly waking up to over the years, the ways in which my super competence, if you want to call it that, you know, my, my overachiever invites around me people to, to, to say, oh, she's got it. Like, we don't, we don't have to worry about that. Helen's got it covered, Right. And so then I set up a situation where then I feel kind of all alone. I feel like exhausted. I'm carrying the ball all by myself, you know, to use some kind of sports metaphor. And, um, but everybody else thinks that that's my preference, right? And then what I can do is then that's how I've started to, over the years, that's how I showed up because that's, that's how I thought I had to be to function. And then I either bring that, um, that we've just described that I'm, I'm carrying the ball. I'm the only one paying attention to the details, or at least it feels that way. Or I, or I invite a situation where people resent me like, dang, she's pushy and she doesn't give me any space to do anything. And she feels like she has to be in control of it. And they call me a control freak or, you know, um, or I'm competitive or aggressive or whatever. And it's, that's not how it has feels over here at all, but I can (laughs) certainly appreciate that. That's how it could appear because that super competence doesn't leave a whole lot of space for others. And so they're either happy that there's not and go, oh, okay, she's got it. Or they're angry and resentful that there's not space. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it is true that, that the dragon will come. I mean, the piece that you, that we're being invited to lean into, to learn more about, about ourselves, to bring things into balance can come in the form of a dragon. And the dragon might be the person or persons or situation that is really exemplifying this, this piece that we've, um, this piece of ourselves that we've not wanted to look at. And um, I'm just noticing how often lately I'm coaching people to, instead of looking at the person and naming them the dragon that must be slayed and, and removed from outside of them. Look at all of the information that's coming from the quote unquote dragon 
as information for oneself about what needs clarity, what needs claiming, what needs seeing in oneself. Um, we've said this in a few different ways in, in the talks we've had, Helen, I've noticed, and I'm really interested in encouraging more ways to, to work with the dragons that we perceive outside of us um, in, in ways that don't cause a true conflagration. I think that everything I see outside of myself is a reflection of myself. That's an absolute fundamental perspective I walk around with. And that doesn't mean that I cause the physical reality around me necessarily. Um, but how I am perceiving it, that alone is absolutely 100% a reflection of myself, of my genetic makeup, of my cultural makeup, of my lived experience, of my soul, of all the things that make up my personality and the way I view the world. Um, it's fundamental. And if I ever don't see the world out there as a reflection of what's happening in here, I tend to step on this drama triangle and feel victimized by it, you know, or I blame it. You know, I'm, I, I play the role of villain and blame. Or I try and offer myself temporary relief and bypass it some way. Yeah. Um, or do some heroic moves. Mm -hmm. And so that slaying the dragon um, isn't about slaying anything out there or even slaying anything in here. It feels to me like slaying the dragon is like melting the illusion that there's anything out there that isn't a reflection of, of something for me to learn from, uh, integrate, be with right here inside myself. Mm. And I think people often take that in a real superficial, concrete way. Like, oh, if I'm irritated by someone else's selfishness, selfishness in this moment how am i being selfish or how do you know what I, what is selfish about myself that i haven't loved or don't like and while that certainly has merit or value it feels a little too limited perhaps like i think a, a broader way of looking at it is if i'm having a a problem with anything out there, just what is it saying about what's happening in here? Am I resisting that person? Am I, do I have an agenda that it should be different? Do I define good in a too narrow way? What if I stopped resisting it? What might it feel like? What, what, what other story might be true? So it's not quite so tit for tat, like if I see selfishness, I therefore must be selfish. But it is, if I see something out there that I don't like, there is something happening in here that I have the capacity to shift. I might not be able to change the reality out there, but I do have the capacity to shift my perception of reality. Yeah, absolutely. You know, 
I just have a quick example that happened to me while I was walking home this afternoon and I passed um, a red Tesla that people were just getting out of and walking up the hill and they had left their dog inside of and the sun was starting to come out and it felt and all of the windows were rolled up. And I had a moment of judgment and fear on behalf of the dog. And yet I was very trepidatious about telling these people how they should run their lives. Um, and so I, as I walked up the hill, I was about 10 paces behind them. I kind of sat with, for a chunk of time, my emotion of the fear for the dog versus, and tried, and I really sought to integrate that in my system. So that if I did say something, it wouldn't be filled with fear, which can be felt at times by others as anger or, or any number of things. So I really sat with integrating the feeling. And then when I got up closer to them, I said, I don't know if you realized that, did you guys mean to leave the dog in the car with all the windows rolled up? Um, and by that time, I really had integrated my fear and I was curious. Did you mean to? And I actually also had to find that question because I wanted to give them the benefit of the doubt. Um, and it was really interesting because immediately they turned around and said, oh, thank you so much for being watchful for that. We have an automatic system in our car that turns on the air conditioning and keeps it on for the pets. It's a smart car. And I said, oh gosh, that's great. Thank you so much. And thank you for, for bearing, thank you for tolerating my kind of getting in your business. <laughs> and he said, oh no, really, thank you for keeping an eye out for things like that. Now, I've gotten in people's business in the past. I have definitely commented on things that were not mine to comment on in the spirit of helping and protecting probably more often <laughs> as an eight on the Enneagram, I have that tendency. And I have not gotten such a um, gracious response ever. Typically I get people's um, talk to the hand, a sort of um, a, a bit of resentment in, in, for my inquiry. Um, so I was really pleased that I found that the response reflected the quality of, of work I had done for those, that minute and a half to be with myself about how to be best with another, even while I had fear and possibly anger running in me. And it certainly, the stakes were low. This was not an intimate person. I had a lot of, you know, long-term relationship with where things were scarier. Um, but it was a stranger and I was, I'm not apt to want to invite conflict on the street with someone. So um, that's an, but that's an example, Helen, of what I think I innately knew, which was that the more that my inner is reflective, reflecting a calm and a curiosity, that it's pretty likely that my outer will reflect that back. And what I hear you saying, Lisa, is, is that you stepped off of an extreme. You made enough space 
in yourself that you weren't fully standing on the polarity of of um, assuming that that you were right and these people were wrong um, that you made enough space for there to be a different um, reality that was equally you know that was acceptable you know that wasn't a problem just to to tie it back to polarities that's what i hear you doing and then they met you not at the other extreme polarity which might be you know if someone is accusing me my extreme polarity might be defensiveness and because you didn't accuse meet them yeah you didn't accuse you didn't receive defensiveness right right i'll piggyback with a story I was living in Seattle a few years ago and had a neighbor below me who was a DJ. It was an art for him. And before he moved in, we had had very clear conversations with the landlady about, mm. about the parameters of that because she had care that it would impact me living above him. And um, to cut a very long story short, there was there were lots of exchanges between us and trying to collaborate. You know, from my perspective, I had said to him, "If you're willing to collaborate with me to find something that works for both of us, you know, I'm game to have you be down there." And the collaboration seemed to stop. Um, it perhaps wasn't going the way that he wanted, or he had a story of what collaboration was that was different from my story about what collaboration was. And anyway, there were a lot of late nights of me being woken up and, you know, going downstairs and knocking on his door and having to really bang before he could even hear me. And at one point we had an exchange where I went downstairs and he answered the door belligerent and screaming at me. And I felt immediate fear um, and he was basically telling me how I was ruining his life and he was going to move out. And he was saying uh, a lot of unkind things about me and said that the landlady even talked about me, but that he wasn't going to say all the things that she said about me. <laughs> it, was, it was really intense belligerence. And, um, and I felt fear and I just took a moment and like as he was screaming at me just made sure that I didn't leave myself and felt my breath and felt my heart beat racing and felt my feet on the ground and I gauged my level of safety I kind of checked in with my intuition I gauged this the physical space between us like how could he he could he reach out and touch me and hit me you know would he have to lean in I mean all these things are like playing out in my mind. I'm trying to ascertain the safety of my physical being yeah, and feeling the intensity in my emotional being, oh, yeah. trying to quiet my <laughs> mental being so it can track all of this. And, um, and for, there was just a, I created enough space in that moment in myself. And I had, I had not been able to do this before that time with someone yelling at me just a few feet from my face, created enough space in myself that I could say when he stopped yelling, wow, I really can appreciate how angry and frustrated you must feel that you're an artist 
that's not getting to do your work the way you want to do it in your own home. Like, I just want to say, I understand that. And what's also true is I'm a person who is not able to sleep in my own home, you know, and what we want um, is at odds, you know, and what we need even is at odds. And like, I get that it sucks. And I get that it's a pain that you're moving out. Um, you know, and, um, yeah. And I watched the energy, the anger in him just drain from his body. Like Mm. it couldn't be sustained. And it's an example of that anger required that level of polarity mm-hmm. required a villain, you know, required that he was a victim and like mm-hmm. he, then he was going to villainize me that I was the villain. Right. And it, I would have had to do the same thing to keep it going. I would have had to feel at the effect of him and make him the villain to keep it going. Mm-hmm. But in that moment when I somehow like some kind of grace descended upon me and mm-hmm. I created enough space because I, my intuition told me I was safe. It was mm-hmm. risky to do, but like I wasn't going to die. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I didn't uh, occupy the polarity he had placed me in mm-hmm. or expected mm-hmm. me to take up with him. He couldn't keep his. And then he kind of like leaned against the door. There was just a little like, a, there was a little more breath. And then he kind of backpedaled and he said, okay, I'll, I'll turn down the music. And then he actually said, I'm sorry, I said those things. Mm. And um, mm. it wasn't a perfect experience in the next two weeks that he lived there, but it was a lot more peaceful. And to the, <laughs> and then a kind of funny thing happened is a few weeks later the the way this building was set up the the main door was locked and there were no buzzers and um and at one day there was like a bang 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 on on the door a couple of weeks or so after he left and I happened to be home in the middle of the day and looked out and saw him out there and uh so I walked downstairs and opened the door and he had been looking for his mail and he couldn't get in to get his mail. I'm like, sure, you can come in and get your mail. And I said, How's it how's it going? You know, I because he had told me that he had, you know, when he was at his height of anger, he said he had to move in with his girlfriend because of me and like that, you know, and they're like they they were both losing their freedom. And so I said in this tranquil moment weeks later so how how's it going he's like yeah hey it's really kind of good it's working out living with my girlfriend (laughs) and it was this sweet Mm -hmm. human moment that we probably wouldn't have been able to have like it felt like we had full resolution as human beings because one of us was able to make the space to not occupy the polarity and the other one was able to join and we could see that there was some gradation in between those extremes. Yeah. Well, and the thing I notice as you're telling me that story is that um, the anger that he was expressing that was sort of a hot anger, the other polarity that could, that, that you could have exhibited would be a cold anger. You could have chosen to freeze and turn away, walk away and not engage with him at all. And sometimes I think that's a choice that people make or think they need to make Um, in response to hot anger is just shutting down and walking away. 
Um, Great and point. actually, right. And, but that's another way of an inflaming more of the hot anger because it's more of an extreme. It's reflective of the opposite, you know, of, of, of what they're doing. Whereas what you did was door number three. <laughs> it was door number three. It was some, it was a response that stayed engaged from a new expression, which was just curiosity and compassion. It was an extreme situation. It was an extreme move of courage, you know, and an extreme move of, of love. I mean, and this is, I think, kind of what balance is, what balance actually is, is extreme love. That's just coming to me now. Hmm that there's a way in which it wasn't okay for me to be out of integrity with myself. I, I loved myself and cared about myself too much to go out of balance. And, and I respected him as another human being too much to go that far out of balance. Now, granted, if my safety had been in danger, I don't know that if my intuition had told me this is not safe, I, I, I couldn't have done that. I don't know what I might have done instead. Um, but it does feel like an act of, of, of self-love and, and a love of other to make a different choice. Well, I think that's a really important point. Looking at how it is that I respond to the world now versus how I responded to the world, say 10 years ago. I too feel that at times that if I don't offer more love into the situation or more seeing or more curiosity, even in the face of some really, really bad behaviors coming at me, then I'm out of integrity. I'm not being who I want to be. And I can feel it in my bones that I'm, it's not even not being who I want to be. It's that I'm, I've lost sight of something that's true about me and about the other person mm. that, that we have the potential to point to is that there's just love between us, even though it doesn't look like it right now. And I have to so feel that love inside of me to be able to point to it, but that it exists also between us, that it, that, it, that it supports me to make a different choice. But if I don't feel enough love on the inside for myself first um, and this vessel I walk around in, my bag of bones and my sweet spirit, how could I prioritize that as an urgent uh, shared space between me and another person? What I'm just seeing in the reflection of our exchange here in these last few moments is that it's the very thing we, we talked about earlier, that, it, that how I see the world is a reflection of what's happening inside, right? So when I am feeling a lot of love for myself, that's when the world, even if it, in its anger, even in its most volatile expressions, um, can be perceived from this one, from the inside, as some 
perhaps distortion, but some expression of love and can meet it in a different way. Yeah, so we're actually, this notion of love is very much what we were just speaking about, with, that the outside is a reflection of the inside and that the inside then gets reflected on the outside. So what do you make of that line in a movie I know both of us recently saw, um, The Last Black Man in San Francisco, when he's sitting on the bus and the woman is complaining about San Francisco and says she hates the city. And he turns to them and he says, um, you, can't, you can't hate on something unless you love it. Or something like that. Was that the line? You can't. You don't. You don't get to you hate get to San hate. Francisco. Yeah. You don't get to hate San Francisco unless you love. Also love San Francisco. Um. So, what do you make of that as a comment in terms as we're talking about polarities? Mm-hmm. I mean, because there is something. I just there's something we can think that of hate and love are at the opposite ends of a polarity. Or, yeah, I don't. I don't think they are. Um, I think that the opposite of hate might be like apathy or disregard. Yeah, I don't think they're polarities. I think what that line means is that our hearts can only be broken if we love, and that hate is kind of an an extreme expression of heartbreak. Yeah. Yeah. And so to take it to the political for a second, I mean, you hear so many people talk about how much they hate our president. Mm. Mm. Is it partly that their hearts are broken? Oh, yeah, Lisa. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I know mine is. Yeah. Mm. And I wonder if our all of this collective anger that's being expressed right now towards his, what we perceive as a kind of ineptitude and insanity and racism and the whole host of things we're upset about. If we could, if we could understand again, that relationship between what you just said about hate, maybe being an expression of when we feel betrayed and that under that is a kind of a heartbreak. And if people were able to express with more courage the depth of, of, of grief we feel in our hearts for what has, what has happened, um, of, of what the leadership has chosen to, to do and represent for us, and if we just sat with the heartbreak of it, I wonder if it would create, it would help change, the, change it more quickly because it wouldn't be about resisting, about acknowledging the depth of what's really going on for us. I think that, what, that this is actually quite profound. Um, I'm really deeply appreciative of this exchange and I want to take it actually even one step further because I think that if we talk about the outside representing the inside it's not even heartbreak about this one man or this one administration it's the heartbreak about all the things that they represent that have already happened they're just showing us 
right? They're just playing the role of showing us mm. what's already been, what is the extreme violence, the extreme brutality, callousness, inhumanity that we have heaped upon each other as human beings in this country, but not even just in this country. This is an extension of what happened, you know, before. We keep reenacting separation. Um, yeah. And it's a heartbreak of all of that, that, that this administration and this man won't let us forget. Like they're keeping it right in our faces. And it's really uncomfortable to feel how much separation there already was. Like they, yeah. they're just making it more visible. Yeah. Well, and you know what, I mean, because it's to speak the unspeakable. I mean, people are saying and reminding people that, um, parents and children were separated at the border under Obama. Exactly. It's, and yes, granted, perhaps Trump's policies have, have really exacerbated it. And there's been a greater influx of people trying to flee their countries in Central and South America. And so we're, as a country, have, have way more people seeking asylum. And the same policy is creating even more chaos. So what you said is that he's representing, he's showing us in our face on a daily basis what we don't seem to want to look at is how this country has spent a huge amount of time perpetrating violence. Yeah. Whether or not it was for an appropriate cause during World War II or not, you know, um, or whatever you believed about the other wars we've been involved in, internally and externally, whether it's the war on crime or, you know, we could always, we can always rationalize, or it seems like the human's very good at rationalizing violence. Mm -hmm. And Trump may be showing us what that excessive attachment to being in control and being right, being right, and ensuring that we get what we need to stay comfortable as a country, and as maybe even a certainly and as a class of wealthy people, and then as white people, what we've needed, what we've attached to, to remain comfortable. I feel mm -hmm. like Trump is showing us what the extreme polarity of that attachment looks like, what it results in. Yeah, and there's an unapologetic quality to it that's shocking and disturbing. Um, there's no sweeping it under the rug kind of relative to what we've been doing to date. You know, we put a nice face on it. We put a warm and fuzzy face on it. And then it's easy to pretend it doesn't matter. Or, oh, damn darn, it just had to be that way. We're sorry it was so brutal, but shucks, you know? Yeah. There were lots of things at stake and we needed to do it that way. Um, yeah. Yeah. On the one hand, we're appalled by what's happening at this larger national level of divisiveness and discord and uh, the real harms that 
that we're watching as fallout again and again and again to so many other people, both in this country and outside this country and to our planet, obviously. But I'm also aware that these same dynamics are playing out in progressive nonprofit institutions. And I'm watching organizations, one of which is very close to my own heart, be divided, ripped apart, and potentially destroyed by these same dynamics of othering and an inability to take that, that information that is about the other that we don't want to see and take it back and learn from it as something that can be, that can be integrated in self. And the danger is, is that how quickly that dynamic can truly be destructive in what seems like a safe and inclusive environment. Yeah. Yeah. I was just shocked to hear last week, I think it was about um, the nature conservancy and the kind of abhorrent sexism that's going on on like a good old boys club um, by outside reports that, you know, were conducted and um, like kind of social audits, if you will. I, 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 I don't want to cite too many details because uh, they're not in front of me, but um, just because we um, espouse you know, progressive, liberal, you know, sustainable um, virtues doesn't mean we're removed from the trappings of being a human being, you know, and these extreme polarities in which we can actually be so far isolated that we can't, we can't see the harm we do. And in othering, in keeping ourselves separate. The, yeah, the, the othering piece. I mean, it's really interesting because, right, the organization I'm referring to is, is the organization I started, which is it's Arts Corps. And um, it was formed with the foundation of uh, believing in not othering, in including and making room for and accepting and welcoming all comers to um, bring their creative voice into being. And um, that inclusiveness was an essential part of what we said we believed in. And that individuals found it easier or found it almost impossible not to other out of their own set of needs and pains and um, perceptions of what was harmful to them or the organization. Um, that foundational practice of how we refrain from othering was missed internal to the organization. And it talk about breaking your heart. That's, that's part of what I feel is there's a, there's a heartbreakingness to this or to hear about the nature conservancy when you, to imagine that an organization we heal, we hold in high regard 
to have disappointed us on some way. I wonder even if isn't there, there isn't, there aren't people who are, who are maybe Trump supporters who are refusing to read or take in more of the news about what he's done in terms of all the rapes that have come forward and the ways that he's um, naming these four um, women congressmen and the name calling there, whether there's a refusal to really look at that because it would require, it would break their hearts at some level mm -hmm. to fully integrate the truth of it. And so are we more afraid? I think we're so afraid of being heartbroken <laughs> in this culture that willful denial and distraction is a far better option. And I think that's one of the most terrifying things for people potentially right now is to be actually drop into the truth of their heartbreak. Yeah, I think that's certainly massively at play. I think facing our own fear and uh, a reluctance to face our own fear and um, to face our own culpability, you know, um, to see ourselves as anything but in some idealistic light, you know, um, the uncomfortability of being in a gray zone, you know, that if we aren't at, if we're not the good guys and not the bad guys, then what are we, you know, that means that we're some part of good and bad, or we're some part of shadow and shine, you know, however, whatever language you want to give it. Um, so I saw uh, the movie Easy Rider last night. It's the 50th yeah. anniversary. Oh. It made visible that 50 years ago, there was a kind of frightening division between mainstream or, you know, what, what might be called a more conservative kind of America and uh, a kind of a up and coming younger, more liberal more progressive, more restless generation, you know, that we labeled hippies or dirty hippies at that, you know, and, and, you know, we kind of made it this funny thing about, oh, cut your hair. And it was about hair and not hair, but what, what actually was going on in that tension in 1969, there was a thing about the war, right? And what are we doing in the name of being right in our comforts, the things mm -hmm. that you were naming before? Mm -hmm. And this generation that was saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, what the hell are we doing? What the hell are we fighting for? Mm -hmm. um, and the extreme othering that was happening, even inside of sometimes the same socioeconomic group, right? So it was the children of middle-class white folks that were rebelling mm -hmm. and saying, no, -uh, I don't want to. I, I, there's something wrong here. Yeah. And, um, and how scary that was. And I won't, you know, give away what happens in the movie in case people want to see it for themselves if they haven't already, but it is these polarities, these extremes happen. And then it's only in the polarity that there's real danger. And one of the things that we could say that, um, and they said in the movie even, that the hippie um, movement represented was a kind of a freedom that was terrifying. Mm. 
And we could think of it as freedom that's terrifying because we don't want to see our own shackles. You know, we don't want to see the ways in which we're, we're selling ourselves on the open market to corporations. Yeah. But there's also this gray zone that we step into. Like we see how we've participated in things that might be really disturbing to look at. You know, what we've been complicit in or explicitly participated in or approved of that we might not, um, we might have to look at through a different lens, you know, or, or be in the muddy uncertainty of like, what do we do if we leave our structures of the extreme polarity? What do we do? without structure. That's terrifying. Well, and then as a child of two hippies, I resented their total lack of structure. <laughs> because I felt like they were of the generation that pushed back incredibly on structure and in the need in the need for freedom and, and expression. And I'm so glad that they did that. I mean, I consider that to be an important legacy for me. And yet they almost represented another polarity. Absolutely. And when do we start integrating? So we're not swinging between these extremes again, because I certainly did go back into structure as a result of the chaos of the hippies. And Yet that didn't serve me physically, emotionally, or psychologically. Um, and I can see myself swinging between the two at times. And something wants to evolve because I so believe that there's an expression of ourselves that continually integrates polarities to create an entirely new thing, a new thought form, a new expression a new interaction, um, a new personage, a new body potentially. But instead of just swinging from one to the other, what's the, what's the move that is more about con you know, consistent integration? I can say, you know, being a child of, of that generation myself, my dad, big hippie, I kind of had the, the two in my between my parents and I was kind of this live in the space between them. Um, but I think that seeing that they are extremes, right? Seeing that they are polarities and that one is not right and the other is not wrong is part of the move, right? It's including them. It's including the whole thing. It's not excluding anything. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it goes back to the very thing you said at the beginning of this conversation is the, the non-attachment to, or I might even add non-identification with one or the other. And um, you and I have had a, uh, another side talk at another time about the swinging that organizations do between centralization and decentralization, right? And, and that everybody gets on the bandwagon of oh, we're too structured and we're, everything's too centralized and we've got our hierarchy is too strong. And so let's go to decentralization. Let's flatten out the organization, right? And then they go to that extreme and then somebody decides a few years later, oh, wait, we need more centralization. And then it, it's just the pendulum keeps going back and forth. And I think the move to get, to get out of that is to see one that that's what we're doing. Just to see it. Yeah. 
And then to recognize that structure is valuable, right? And that that's, in this one example, that's what centralization really represents. It's like a, a polarity of extreme structure, let's just say. Right. Right? And let's just say the decentralization is as more on the spectrum, on the continuum of way less structure. Um, but, but if you get too far away from each other and understanding each other and too far away from knitting each other's activities together in some way, you know, and, 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 and playing on the same team, the same game, to use that metaphor, um, it, 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 it tumbles into chaos. So some structure is necessary, just like in our conversation previously about conscious communication, we need to also bring in um, our emotions, the wholeness of ourselves. But that doesn't mean that our workplace becomes a psychotherapy session. That's an example of how do we see that there are polarities of therapy session, leave your feelings at the door. And recognize that some of each, the, the best parts of each might be required in some dance in between. Absolutely. And, the, and it starts with oneself recognizing how attached to one of those polarities you are. Because if you're overly attached to, that, that, to the centralization model to be what happens, then you will cause a reaction of, of chaos in response to it. Versus if you offer that some centralization could be useful, but you're not overly attached to A, what that looks like, or B, that everything be centralized. It creates enough room for the energies of decentralization to um, have some autonomy or some flexibility, and then they can work together. That applies to everything. That applies to relationships. That applies to, uh, you know, it, it, would, it could apply to, you know, political parties. Because when you think about it, they, they, they end up swinging into ideological polarities on the regular um, at, and, and, and without a willingness to say, you know, I'm going to attach a little less to this thing of the way it's, that has to be like X um, so that I can make room for what seems to be some need for these other things as well. Um, Helen, I have to pause here for a second because yeah, there's, there's some guys, banging. I hope that that last bit wasn't too colored by banging. <laughs> it might have been. Well, might have been. Well, it is what it is. It is what it is. Um, it feels like we're close to the end of, of, of this really rich conversation anyway. And looking back on it, I'm noticing that almost every thought could become positional if I let it. And I'm curious what happens if over the next couple of weeks, if I hold much more lightly to the thoughts so they don't have to become positions and in turn not become polarities. I feel more resolve around that than I have in a while. So thank you for that. Mm -hmm. I, I like how you say that, like the attachment to something becomes a position and the position becomes a polarity. It, it doesn't mean that we don't stand somewhere. We can still stand somewhere, you know? Mm -hmm. I, I, I think you would agree. Absolutely, um, yeah. But we stand there understanding that it's not the only place we could stand, you know? 
And that however we're perceiving the world from wherever it is we're standing is reflective of something that's going on inside. And so however I'm seeing the world is an invitation for me to learn and to feel and to be with. And it might be then to adjust my stance uh, or it might be just more fully accept that there is a stance that's different from my own and watch what creativity comes from that. Mm-hmm. Um, something will then will arise. Mm-hmm. Something between chaos and rigid order will arise. Yeah. Yeah. This conversation's also allowed me to get closer to the depth of my heartbreak about what's happening in this country. And as we were talking about it, I could feel the knot in my throat. And I realized I have a lot more grief bottled up inside about what's happening to here and across the globe. I'm feeling a little self-conscious about moving from being um, a righteous activist to a heartbroken lover (laughs) (laughs) and I'd rather be the heartbroken lover more and more regardless of what it costs me in terms of other people's perceptions because it will feel um, like it will be healing for for me there's nothing that keeps the heartbroken lover from taking action, but the action might come from a, a tender, a tender place yeah, rather than a, a righteous place. Great, great point. That's absolutely inspiration for my, the rest of my afternoon. <laughs> This has been Naked Conversations, Women Uninterrupted. If our conversation inspired or provoked you, we hope you'll start a meaningful exchange with the people in your life. We're grateful to Kevin McLeod, who generously provided this music, and to artist Tom X, a dear friend of Lisa's, for providing the beautiful painting that graces our show title. Until next time, may we all remember the sometimes miraculous power of real dialogue and practice having kind, curious, and naked conversations. Mm